Welcome to the My Dialorama podcast. I'm Abla, I'm a film programmer and my co-host Coco Green. Hello. Hello. This week we'll also be joined by a guest. I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, my name is Pablo Navaretti. I'm a journalist, independent journalist and documentary filmmaker, normally focusing on Latin American issues, but with a, a new documentary on Julian Assange's father and the struggle for, for the freedom of Julian Assange. Thank you very much. So our focus this week will be on Pablo's work, specifically No Extradition, his latest film. Just before we do that, quick intro, as usual, we'll talk about our... Well, it's only going to be me this this week, actually. I'm going to talk about my picks of the week and mention a couple of festivals. So I'm going to talk about the festivals first because I'm going to do quite a smooth transition from one of my picks and on to No Extradition. So first of all, I'd like to flag the Deauville Film Festivals. It's the American Film Festival of Deauville in France. It's quite a long-running festival. Now, the interesting thing this year, as one of the producers tells me, is that they don't really have any American guests because of Corona. So I'm not quite sure how that's going to go and who they're having in the end, who will turn up. But they have quite an important heritage section. So they'll be showing older films, such as David Fincher's The Game or Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. There's a celebration of Kirk Douglas films. Um, and a few new films. There's Jonathan Nossiter's latest, Last Words. So that will be running from the 4th to the 13th of September, and that will be live. So that will actually be taking place in Deauville. The other one I'd like to mention, so that uh, that's a recommendation flagged by Filmfest Report, our partner. So there's the White Deer International Film Festival. That's running from the 5th to the 13th of September. That's in Britain. But this year it will be running digitally. It's completely free to watch the films and uh, it mostly focuses on early filmmakers and it offers the winners the opportunity to share their experiences on its podcast and social channels. So a little bit like what Emerging Filmmakers Night, for example, does. So that's a nice one to check out. There's the Open City Documentary Film Festival as well, and that's running from the 9th to the, the 9th to the 15th of September, and that will also be online. And that usually, uh, like every year, they celebrate the art of non-fiction, and they'll have about 30 documentaries followed by Q&As for you to watch. There'll be special events, industry panels and talks. Specifically, there'll be a masterclass with Congolese documentary filmmaker Judo Hamadi, so he is the director of the recent film The Billion Road, which was named the 2020 official selection of the Cannes Film Festival and the Expanded Realities exhibition. So you'll find more info about these two festivals on the Film Fest Report website. They'll be uh, covering the festivals. They'll probably be uh, hosting interviews and so on as they've got uh, press accreditation. And the last one I want to talk about is the Australian International Muslim Film Festival, and that runs from the 5th to the uh, 19th of September. And that's been running for a couple of years, and it's an international film showcasing films from all the countries with a majority Muslim population, or any films that touch on uh, issues around um, Islam. So two films that I'd like to flag. One of, is a Palestinian short, Maradona's Legs by Firas Khouri. And that's about two Palestinian boys during the 1990 World Cup who are looking for the uh, so-called Maradona's legs, which are actually a piece of missing sticker that they need to complete a set and win a free Atari. 
It's a really, really good short. And there's the Gaza One Football One Leg by Patrice Forger. So he's a French filmmaker. And that's about a football game between a French team and a team from Gaza who are all, uh, they are all amputees, basically. So it's a really sweet film. So that's it for festival recommendations. I just want to flag as well a really good series on Netflix. It's called Dirty Money. And uh, each episode it's it's in investigative documentaries really each episode focuses on a specific subject and they're all really good i've seen them all so I you've seen them all all right yeah, well i really, really like good. the the kushner one about Kush, um, jared kushner and his property empire which i saw quite recently but that the one i wanted to talk about more specifically this time was the one about formosa in taiwan it's a taiwanese company that manufactures what they call pellets, plastic pellets, that they, they, they sell on to other companies that make uh, plastic components. So this company, Formosa, opened up a plant in a small town in Texas and they sell it to the residents and to the, the authorities there as a means to create jobs and opportunities for the local community. And obviously they end up polluting the waters and creating massive environmental damage. And why I think it's quite interesting to mention here is because one of the workers at the plant becomes a whistleblower because he exposes the plant's malpractice and their borderline like criminal activities. But he actually becomes a pariah in the town because many residents see it as him jeopardising their jobs because so many people from the town are employees of the plant. So if he jeopardises the plant's operation, then they end up unemployed. I thought it was quite interesting to mention that specific aspect of um, the fallout of whistleblowing. So that's Dirty Money. It's on Netflix and it's directed by... No, it's not. It's uh, one of the executive producers is um, Alex Gibney. He made uh, Going Clear, which is the documentary about Scientology, which is really good. We can move on to uh, Pablo's work. So Pablo, you have a new film out, which is No Extradition. So if you'd like to tell us a little bit more about it and about how it came about and about your meeting with uh, Julian Assange's father. Um, thanks again for, for having me on. So No Extradition is a 35-minute um, short documentary composed of just some five scenes, essentially. Um, three with Julian Assange's dad, John Shipton, at different uh, protests outside Belmarsh Prison um, at an event where Julian is given a journalism prize at uh, a concert organised by the Don't Extradite, Extradite Assange campaign in uh, in the UK where um, MIA performed um, and he spoke at and then uh, an interview by a journalist called Mohammed El Mazi who one of the few journalists has been kind of really following this story uh, an interview that Mohammed does with John on the train on the way for another trip to visit Julian in Belmarsh and in between um, there are two scenes that, that are, are put in of uh, one is an event um, that was held in a church in central London where a lot of People spoke, uh, John Pilger, Loki, the UK, Iraqi hip-hop artist, uh, Mark Curtis, uh, Lisa Longstaff, um, Nils Melzer, the UN Special Rapporteur on Torture. And so it's, it's a scene where we take some of the interventions there and not, you know, we take, I think, four people and, and just provide a kind of little summary of that. And then we have a, um, a scene of a protest outside uh, the Magistrates Court in Westminster, uh, where a lot of the kind of hearings post Julian being uh, imprisoned in April 2009 took place. Uh, so it was shortly after that. And basically this film came about because I'd been filming some of these protests uh, for Telesur, 
uh, English and Spanish. Telesur is a pan-Latin American channel based in Venezuela um, and in Quito for the English channel. I've been covering as a, as a correspondent for that, for those channels or for that channel for both languages. And I was put in touch with uh, Julian's father through John Pilger, the Australian documentary filmmaker and journalist who I worked with in 2005. I was living in Venezuela and I was a Venezuela researcher for his film, The War on Democracy, which is on Vimeo. So if anyone's interested in that, um, it's a, a documentary, a feature length that explores the US interventions in Latin America and focuses, I guess, the film uh, focuses on Venezuela. And it, at that time, there was Hugo Chavez was the president and it was a, uh, arguably the high point of this pink tide movement in Latin America of left wing governments. Um, so yeah, I got in touch with John. John put me in touch with John Shipton, Julian's dad. I interviewed him, and I just was struck by. I guess I was struck with him because of his very soft-spoken man, but also with this kind of fierce determination to sort of fit free his son. You know, I, I, I'm not pretending that I, I kind of neutral to the to the issue. I I very much think that what's happening what's happening to Julian Assange is an outrage. I think it's. I think Julian Assange is a political prisoner of the British government at the behest of the US government. I think this has uh, happened to him because he had, because he exposed US war crimes. And I think what's, you know, the fact that he could be extradited to the US to face 175 years after already being, you know, essentially having to be forced to, to, to stay in the Ecuadorian embassy for close to 10 years and uh, and then being pulled out by, you know, illegally almost, um, and, and held in a high security prison now in Belmarsh. I think all of that is just an outrage that that can happen to someone for exposing war crimes. So, yeah, that's, that's probably quite a long answer, but that's how the film came about, and that's, the, yeah, the backdrop to it. Were these all disparate sections that you'd filmed for Telesur, and then you brought them together, you collated them, and then you edited them together? Is that how it, how it worked? So I'd filmed a number of protests um, already, you know, maybe like 10 at 10 different instances and it was only really after I interviewed John Shipton say in I kind of lost track of the time but roughly I think around August 2019 only like close to a year ago that I kind of just you know I kind of thought you know that I wanted to do something uh make a film I had a lot of work other work on so I didn't have that much time and then I thought how how would this work as a film and I I just thought maybe I just need to spend a few filming days with John and it ended up being just three and then I just decided that rather than you know try and do just a thing with John like a kind of I wanted to also balance that which was for me a kind of a as a documentary filmmaker I guess I started making films oh I made the first film 10 2009 it was released i filmed it in 2000 december 2008 and that was a more traditional sort of vo sort of archive bit of history a bit of sort of windows of observation but uh the film prior to this one was made with tyler velicott uh, we both called truth and it looks at the um women of the fart guerrilla the colombian guerrilla movement in Havana on the eve of them signing peace accords and and uh, and the fact that there was a subcommittee of a uh, gender subcommittee that, that they created and so that was an obs- my first observational mm-hmm. film I guess and I'm I kind of decided that I wanted to like, carry on that style um, and so yeah I, I basically thought well look, I've got these really quite historic bits of filming from uh, you know the magistrate's court and then 
I decided just to try and do something that balanced John and this other side, which I, I also thought was important because I think there was this kind of very small grassroots campaign um, that, you know, were ignored by the mainstream media, composed of a number of very dedicated sort of activists who, you know, were doing whatever they could to, to, to give prominence to Julian's case and go outside Belmarsh every weekend and go outside the Ecuadorian embassy when he was there. And I just felt that this was also an important thing that should be highlighted. And I kind of wanted to give that kind of context as well as spending, a, you know, having a bit of time with John and, and just exploring John's, I guess, John a bit more as a, as a father and and what was kind of driving him to, to sort of advocate for his son. So, so before I ask you, because I did have some questions about um, about John, but for the base of activism, is that journalist or political activist or international? Like, how would you describe the makeup or the character of that activist groundswell? Or if it's international, but the the one that the ones that were featured in your film. So it was the variety of activists it looked like, and of course there was um, a woman who spoke who was a former political prisoner herself. So so how would you characterize that? I mean, that woman is my mum, actually. No, stop! <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That woman's my mum. So um, so yeah, that's. I guess I didn't. Yeah, that was a quite a big omission. I mean, my mum has been part of that group of uh, sort of activists. Um, I mean, there are others. Like I would say that for, you know, I think to be fair that I've been more dedicated like there are those that have not missed any like every weekend you know every time there was a thing i think my mom's been quite prominent she's gone to a lot of them um and she yeah she's a former my you know the fact that my name is pablo navaretti and speak with an english accent isn't yeah. it's because um my parents were forced to uh, leave chile in 1975 1976 separately um and they had political asylum in the UK and I was subsequently born here because they were both in you know they spent time in concentration camps after the coup in Chile in 1973 on 9-11 uh, 1973 a US-backed coup um, and they you know like many were imprisoned you know tortured and eventually they were lucky they managed to get out of the country and so my mum has been quite early on a very felt very strongly that, that, that what's taking place with Julian is, is a massive injustice and you know I, I do too, and she's been very much part of that. And so, yeah, that, that speech she gave, um, yeah, I filmed it. That, it didn't come out ever. I just filmed it. And, and yeah, it was a kind of a last-minute inclusion in the film, but I'm, I'm glad I did because I think a lot of people have been um, kind of, it sort of seems to have made an impact uh, with quite a few people in terms of what she says, and it brings... I mean, up to now, I've all my work basically has been, documentary-wise, has been on Latin America. And so this is the first project that isn't really uh, what well, isn't about Latin America per se, although obviously there is a link uh, to Ecuador, given you know Ecuador's um, role in, in, in providing political asylum, and also and 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 the fact is that many of the activists, um, and we're talking like you know twenty, twenty five, thirty. These are the kind of numbers that were coming out. You know, a good thirty percent, twenty five percent were Latin American, and I think that was. Yeah, like revealing and, and I think you know I think there are reasons for that uh, people like my mom other Latin Americans um, and so yeah I mean the question was you know these who were these people they, they were just you know my mom is a was a scientist until last year when she retired she was a quite a senior 
scientist and you know ran part of or was in charge of part of the national blood service um but she on her weekends and you know <laughs> um went out to belmarsh sometimes went out to the ecuadorian embassy and all these people many most of them have jobs and just feel that what's happening to julian is an outrage and and you know and, and go out and protest about it and and uh, you know ignored by obviously the mainstream and and, uh, and almost denigrate you know almost kind of mocked uh, you know spoken of as kind of oddballs or whatever uh, sometimes so um yeah i would say they're just kind of normal people that feel that there's an injustice being done and sometimes that word activist i kind of feel that it's often used very selectively to people towards people that are of the left or doing you know when when people march in favor of brexit or or, or against it i don't really hear you know people talking about them as activists where you know they're also advocating for something that they feel so i think whenever someone comes out to protest something that they feel strongly about yeah i guess they become an activist um but these are just people that are part of society and for whatever reason feel strongly about that issue it just made me th because if we're talking about um the actions of of the supporters and the campaigners and people just coming out and trying their best to highlight these issues what are you hoping to achieve by putting this documentary out there because as we saw even in the a very kind of quite basic instance of whistleblowing which is the uh the documentary i mentioned about the worker at the formosa plant that denounced malpractice he was completely ostracized by his community that the consequences were dire for him and they are they tend to be for most whistleblowers which is why it's such a courageous thing to do but it's it, they do it at immense risk to themselves and the the problem is, and I found that with Assange, I found that with Edward Snowden as well, is they've gone through all this effort. They've gone through so, they've put their livelihoods at risk. They've, well, they, they've lost so much. And yet, in the grand scheme of things, a lot of people either know this already and don't care or simply don't care. Or they're up against a media system that will cover up as much as they can. So... I feel like, what would you say, what can these campaigners do? What can people putting the message out there and highlighting these issues, what can they do uh, to reach a wider audience? And to piggyback, you... Abla, just because um, I had a similar question about the timing, because in terms of, you know, your question about what the aims were, I was wondering, too, about the timing of that, because I know the upcoming, you know, Charles forthcoming. But I hate to do double barrel questions, but just to keep that in mind. It's, it's fine okay. to I mean, I think when I made the film, I, was, I did want to it to come out before you know monday the 7th of september the the sort of last in theory phase of the extradition trial begins so i i wanted this film to come out before th this process began now on the 7th of september and i had a number of other projects i was finishing and so in, in a way i would i would have liked to have more time to even get a you know do a crowdfunding campaign i mean you know i've uh, i've got children i live in london I, I kind of said to myself, the first film I ever did, and, and, and I came into documentary filmmaking without any, you know, I never went to film school. I guess I came at it from independent journalism after living in Venezuela, working with John Peel during this, on this feature length and working with other, but they were more news journalists, videographers. I kind of, it interested me, the idea of sort of, sort of storytelling uh, through documentary and I did say, you know, I can't make these kind of films irresponsibly financially. 
but I did because I kind of was so compelled to just do it. And I said, look, I'll, I'll sort the rest out after. Um, so I did want it to come out before because I thought I did, you know, I, I thought it was important for people to sort of see this film uh, before September or during, you know, while the case is going on. And in terms of the whistle, I mean, there is a, there is also actually a film. Um, curiously, I didn't even know this until a week before the film was going to be premiered. It had already been announced. And, John, and Julian's dad told me that he was being part of another film being made by a number of people, a feature length, uh, also called Father the Movie, <laughs> about his kind of, um, yeah, his journey, what he's doing. Um, but it's, this is, they're here in now in London filming, you know, a, a bigger production that's going to take in the whole trial and everything and will be out next year. So I, I kind of, I'm very, I'm, I'm happy that this is a shorter film and it's come come out now because I think it would have been a bit unfortunate to have two, two films sort of covering the same ground. And I think my film is, you know, it's kind of different to what the other stuff that I've seen out there on Julian. There's been some really excellent sort of more, archive-based, talking heads-based uh, films done by, some by sort of news channels. and uh, But this was, a, you know, this is quite a simple sort of get to the sort of humanity that, uh, of, of John as a, as a dad, as a, as a human being. And then and then the rest was, you know, sort of quite simple observational stuff. In terms of the whistleblowing, I mean, I mean, the different, I think we have to also slightly separate the whistleblowers, which in this case would be Chelsea Manning, mm-hmm. um, I saw a really good film, actually. Well, I thought it was pretty good because um, I haven't actually seen that many films recently. But Official Secrets, I saw it on... Um, well, I'm going to advertise it. But I saw it, um, I think it's a 2019 film by um, about the GCHQ, which is the British... Catherine, and, yeah, yeah. Catherine Gunn, I think. Or Gunn, yeah. yeah. Uh, the story of... Um, and it's Kira Knightley plays uh, Catherine Gunn, a British intelligence... Uh, and, and she's a whistleblower, um, and it's a real case. And I found that to be a interesting and kind of well-made film. And so, you know, people like Catherine Garn, people like Chelsea Manning, people like Edward Snowden, the whistleblowers, obviously. But Julian is slightly different. And I think Julian, then that's what's been very effective in a way, is how, you know, this kind of feeds into what I would argue has been the very effective demonization of Julian Assange by by. Um, a range of interests, I guess, um, in that Julian Assange is essentially a publisher. I mean, he's, I mean, WikiLeaks have got a hundred percent, um, you know, record in terms of, you know, correct information. Um, they worked with, you know, a range of media, uh, in publishing a number of their leaks. Um, and so he's essentially a journalist and a publisher and he's not the whistleblower. He's the person that worked with the whistleblower, mm-hmm. To reveal and and so what's happened now is that the you know the, the precedent that has been set is that a you know a journalist of a country australia has been arrested in the uk for exposing war crimes of the us uh and so th- that precedent is horrific for any journalist the fact that it's not front page news i think is really quite revealing and i think we we really need to unpack why that's the case i mean my you know my argument is that the uh, UK media have been, they have not only not reported this case fairly, but they have been at the forefront of smearing Julian Assange, uh, the case, they've misrepresented the facts. Um, and I think they've been at the forefront of demonising, which has contributed to probably the lack of, of sympathy um, that he has generally in the population. I think this is changing. I think there is 
at least in terms of bodies such as Amnesty, Reporters Without Borders, the National Union of Journalists, increasingly there are bodies who are increasingly kind of vocal about what what's at stake here. But I think that the, and obviously we can't forget the, the, the accusations of, you know, there were never actually um, charges, there weren't even charges, there were accusations around sexual um, assault you know sexual assault charges and, and the more the more i read about how these were handled in terms of the british judiciary the you know the guy who is now head of the labor party sir keir starmer was head of the crown prosecution service and if you look at the emails from the crown prosecution service to the swedish judiciary telling them not to back out of this i mean it all does it does raise a lot of suspicion about what was really uh, going on here and to what extent these were, you know, genuine, uh, you know, accusations, and and the fact that they weren't processed in the regular manner, they were processed in highly irregular uh, ways, really lead to 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 many to 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 say that that this is a part of the political persecution and was done to take away support. Because I know for a fact that many people on the left who initially sympathised with Assange stopped basically after all yeah, this. Yeah, as soon as that said, came out. Oh, said look. Yeah. I, I kind of have sympathy uh, for him, but you're not going to, you know, I can't defend a, a, a rape. Well, that's why I thought it was interesting that you had uh, one of the representatives from Women Against Rape speak at the uh, at that meeting in the church and yeah, talked I mean, about think, the way the allegations were handled. You know, the fact that someone like Lisa Longstaff has not been interviewed in, you know, I've never seen an interview with her in The Guardian. I've never seen an interview with her on the BBC. And, you know, she's damning about what, what from an organisation called Women Against Rape, um, she's damning about what she feels and the organisation feels is, that, what is behind these um, allegations. got the sense that there was almost this, like, this kind of narrative that it was all like men who sort of minimised sort of rape. Or it was a really kind of disturbing sort of narrative that was imposed. As, you know, it was like, you're not, you know, you're not, you're not really defending Julian, are you? Everyone knows he's he's a he's kind of it's a rapist, isn't he? You know that kind of the anyone that knows the behaviour of the US and British security services uh, wouldn't be surprised at all if this if there was a, a something sort of created around that. Um, and perhaps that's why more Latin Americans were were willing to sort of look into this, and say, look, something looks a bit irregular here. They're used to um, that kind of thing happening. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, Latin Americans understand what US imperialism does when it wants to, you know, eliminate, be it a government, a movement, an individual. Uh, and so, like, you know, this kind of benefit of the doubt saying, you know, oh, no, but it's, you know, in the end, it was completely the case that the US wanted to extradite him for his publishing of war crimes. But it, you know, it was all sold and on, on, on another, it was like, no, this has nothing to do with the US. This is all about these very serious um, charges of, of rape, basically, that they were saying, which was not the case. Yeah, I mean, I think you know, this film doesn't go into all of that, but it, it, it just tries to provide the, the, the feelings of a father, the feelings of, of, of a group of people that, that, that are defending Julian, many of which are women, including my mum, people who have suffered uh, the brunt of, you know, who have been political prisoners. And I think it's made the people that have watched it, I've I've heard comments that it's certainly uh, made people think, and especially, you know, you talk about the intervention by Lisa Longstaff and Women Against Rape. I mean, I was struck when I was at that event. I mean, it was a very powerful speech, uh, and I think it really hits home with a lot of people. So is that what you're trying to do, is like amplify these unheard voices that are clearly strong voices if you are to attend 
any sort of rally of support and then also to reframe the narrative away from Julian as an individual to the broader story about as you're saying you U.S. imperialism are trying to um I don't know I guess stamp out any sort of social movement I mean do you feel like that's part of this his story is part of a broader social movement around um freedom of speech or holding empires to account like what would you say is the I have to be very upfront that yeah I I have a problem with the dominant media the narratives that they impose I think that there is a, a very striking correlation between who's a baddie and who's a goodie uh, for the Western media and who's a baddie and a goodie for Western governments. And so I think that's a very unhealthy correlation that we see. You know, I've lived in Venezuela during the Chavez years. I've done documentaries in Colombia. I know that Venezuela and Colombia during a, you know, have lived very different experiences. Yet for the Western media, Colombia would probably be a, a relative success story and Venezuela would be, even though Venezuela today is suffering very real. I mean, I have Venezuelan family. I know, I know what's going on there. But if you look at Colombia and Venezuela, and you look at the media reporting of both of those countries for uh, the last 20 years, I think you'll get an insight into what I would argue are the very real problems with uh, the mainstream media. And so my journalism, my documentary filmmaking has always tried, I guess, to offer, has always challenged, I guess, the dominant narrative. In that sense, this film feeds into that. And I guess in the sense that it's an observational film, I also, I've seen some great observational films and I've even the ones that I've thought were great technically and powerful and emotional, I sometimes had very real problems with their lack of sort of context. The fact that whilst they were effective, powerful in terms of the micro, I thought that by not illuminating any macro or any context, they also um, left you a little bit none the wiser as to why things happen, why. And I think that's the critique I would have of much of Western journalism as well. There's this absolute focus on the individual. And I think that's, if it's not done on purpose, it's a kind of subconscious lack of uh, structure or context uh, that, that is given to people. And that's why people don't, you know, they put like Chavez was this kind of populist army general that kind of, you know, just arrived. And it was almost like that he was tricking the Venezuelans, the poor Venezuelans, uneducated into voting for him election after election. And there was no context to the fact that, you know, Venezuela had higher inequality than South Africa at the time of his election, that poverty was 55 percent, That you know, people. And so this lack of kind of context really is very useful uh, for for a lot of people in terms of uh, minimizing agents the agency of individuals in in collective struggle yeah I'm, I'm always sort of seeking to uh, be able to platform that collectivity um, and so yeah it's a learning curve for me as a, as a filmmaker as well but I do I am I, I certainly I'm certainly aware of, of the things which I which I'm not you know, which I yeah. find a bit problematic in, in the observational filmmaking that I've seen. Um, Sakari, you had a question about uh, John Shipton specifically, didn't you? Yes. No. So I thought that was interesting about trying to capture his sense of, you know, duty and family and fatherhood and trying to really frame his devotion to it, not only in his admiration for what 
he did but also just as a father so I just wondered if that was something you were trying to capture the meaning of fatherhood and family and duty that it's not just about you know when he's in prison that even process of being a political you know as you're framing it as a political prisoner but that you really do kind of imprison the family and it becomes a family fight as well so I just wanted to know what you were trying to portray uh yeah I mean I I don't think like you know any father who had who has a son in prison I imagine would who felt that there was a kind of gross miscarriage of justice, I think would compel would be compelled to to do something. Obviously, John has you know, you know left Australia for large time se- sections of time to come to the to the UK. When he was interviewed by by Mohammed, this journalist, at the end, and it was a you know there was a kind of personal question asked about how he felt as a father, and he gives that quite emotional response. You know, it's almost like determination to free his son, you know, becomes even greater once he feels because of the level of injustice yeah i felt that was important uh, we end on on that on that kind of on on those lines because at at the root yes there is you know this noble fight there was a kind of collectivity that feels outraged there's a global movement trying their best to save julian's life he's already you know in health wise he's by all accounts not in a good state yeah obviously i think at, at, at it's very it's most simple this is a struggle of a father trying to save his son's life but it's also so much more than that i'm always curious about those things because it it relates somewhat to what you were saying about providing context because i find that that's what's lacking in order to be able to understand those stories you know whether or not you agree with your perspective on it but even to be able to digest digest it and analyze it you have to have some sort of political education and even when we think about how the narratives are framed as the individual that's always a problem because people are always situated in families right so always in institutions and that's kind of the most obvious one is you're always situated in a family so it's even a problem to talk about the individual without understanding that context of the family like what's intergenerational about their life what's inherited what will they be passing down the sort of legacies there so um that's why i was asking about the father that's no that's really interesting actually the immediate context is the family before it's the society you live in. That's where there's like the structural issues come from. But that's, to be honest, that's the whole issue with the lack of um, long form journalism. There's very little critical analysis and there's very little mm-hmm. space for that to give you a, a genuine structural perspective on things. I mean, I, I've said it on many occasions, you know, people are just like, okay, can you stop talking about this? But, you know, I lived in Venezuela. The Guardian sent their first correspondent in 20 years or so to be the Latin American correspondent and the person didn't even speak Spanish. He lived in the richest part of Caracas with the kind of quote unquote expats or whatever. Um, and his journalism, you know, made no attempt to have, there is, you know, this guy, there was financing there for him to do, provide, even if it was, uh, you know, hostile journalism towards the government, there could have been context, you know, it was just very lazy, uh, very much, you know, about the individual sort of, almost mocking it. I mean, and then there's this other thing, you know, obviously the Western person, and I think the Western left are also, I mean, I, you know, I'm born here, so I'm not, I don't want to be too, but, you know, there is also this kind of slight imperial mindset that, that permeates all sections of society yeah. and countries, such as the UK, that kind of feel that, you know, uh, are these kind of colourful, you know, kind of, let's use these kind of slightly you know, mocking, but uh, euphemisms like the colourful character or like, you know, these kind of corrupt dictators or the, almost, and, and the fact that, you know, many people feel that they have 
the that they can sort of lecture the many of these countries, the sort of darker skinned, you know, mm-hmm. how they should carry out their revolutions or... Well, there's a journalist, Chris Hedges, that makes a similar observation about that, that foreign correspondents for foreign correspondents um, that's the cushiest job you can get because like you're saying you described as lazy journalism he's like you don't have to do much you just can kind of repeat what comes across in associated press and you get a very cushy lifestyle so you know i come from a political left-wing political family and i when i lived when i went to live in venezuela in 2005 you know i went i studied at the school of oriental and african studies in london a very left-wing i studied economics uh, you know i was <laughs> um i was hardly i think too naive about kind of the, the establishment and, and what U.S. imperialism. But I went when I went to live in Venezuela. I thought the Guardian was a left-wing newspaper, and I and I took it, you know, journalism seriously. But after seeing the kind of just absolute sort of superficiality with which uh, it dealt, almost like reckless, and I, and I kind of thought, imagine the contempt that they have towards their readers to send someone to the to the country who doesn't to be their first correspondent in twenty something years who doesn't even speak the language and who lives lit in a penthouse in the richest part of the country, you know, of the, of the capital. It's almost like they, it's a, I don't know, I just find it very almost disrespectful uh, to their readers. Uh, and, and it made me think, you know, that's their Latin America correspondent. Why, why should I trust what their Africa correspondent or their Asia correspondent or any correspondent Right. Well, no, I think it's a very interesting point and also allows me to move swiftly on to uh, another point I wanted to discuss with you, which uh, was uh, one of your previous films, Hip Hop Revolution. Now, I'm a big hip hop fan, for one of the better words, and um, I watched it and I really enjoyed it. And for those who don't know it, it's a documentary about hip hop schools, I guess, in Venezuela that yeah. where young people are taught hip-hop alongside politics. Mm. So I just want to know a bit more about how that came about. And mm. I'm mostly curious to see what your perspective on this is since this was shot a few years ago. So given what's happened since in Venezuela, where do these hip-hop schools fit now? Yeah, that film, to be honest, hasn't really been shown nearly as much as it should have been, and that's my fault. And But yeah, basically I went to Venezuela with... Uh, Jody McIntyre, who was a young a young activist with cerebral uh, palsy, and um, quite I met him, a quite an inspirational uh, person. And then I went also with his friend Loki, uh, the UK Iraqi hip hop artist. Some of you might know, political I guess rapper. And yeah, we we spent some time with the Hip Hop Revolution Collective, uh, who were you know political hip hop collective, supportive of the government, but also very militant and you know in no way could they be said to be kind of a kind of government uh, I mean they supported Chavez and the movement but they were the reason I actually made this film was because I made my first ever film was called Inside the Revolution it was I made it after living in Venezuela coming back and deciding you know that I wanted to make something that could about my experience and in that film, there's a small bit of archive that I use about a performance that some of the hip hop revolution uh, people did uh, on El Presidente, which was Hugo Chavez's Sunday sort of weekly show, uh, where he, you know, sometimes it was hours long, where he basically, sometimes he sang, but basically he was telling the, the Venezuelan people what his government was doing and what he was doing, and um, uh, and. I think uh, they were invited on to sing a song uh, 
that they had done uh, celebrating the fact that the coup against Chavez in 2002, yeah, I think it was, 2001, 2002, that lasted 48 hours and was eventually overturned. Uh, and there was a, that was a song about that. But then in that bit of archive, um, and this film is actually on Vim, on the Alvarado films, Vimeo, free to watch, my first film. They decided to just do an impromptu rap about the deficiencies of the bureaucracy, of the of the government bureaucracy. So, which I thought was really brave, and I think it was very much. I mean, I, I'm a hip hop fan as well. So, you know, the fact that they did that, and I kind of I thought it kind of very much spoke to the spirit of rebellion. Even a hip hop group that were supporting the government was sort of so militant that they were just just rapping against government bureaucracy in front of the whole country in front of the president and it was funny because i showed that film in a number of places in the u.s shortly after it came out in 2009 that december i went and i showed it at harvard yale columbia um and a lot of the students there like in the q a they were they were asking whether that they were now in prison if these guys were now in prison for having rapped like that in front of the president. And, and I was just like struck because they were, I mean, at the time, obviously that, that was part spoke about, you know, to the, to the idea that they had of what, you know, what was happening in Venezuela and, and almost like any dissent would mean you'd go to prison like that. But yeah, I mean, I decided that if I ever made something again about Venezuela, that I'd try and make it with these guys. And, and yeah, I thought I found them inspirational um, as to what they're doing now. I mean, you know, this that was in 2011 when, when nearly 10 years later the, the situation in Venezuela has got much more complicated for a number of reasons um but you know one of the reasons that's never almost never spoken about is the sort of quite severe u.s sanctions mm-hmm. against the country i mean again we're in britain and hardly anyone in the media speaks about the one billion dollars worth of Actually, I read recently that it could be even twice that, so two billion dollars worth of gold that the Bank of England has basically decided to steal um, off the government. But um, things are difficult in Venezuela. So these guys, it is not the case that these schools are still going on. Um, a lot of these activists have left. Some have left the country. Some are doing different things. I haven't really followed what's going on, but I know that it's not that reality doesn't exist anymore, um, and that. When I filmed 2011, it wasn't the high point. The high point of, of what happened, I guess, the Venezuelan process under Chavez and Maduro was under Chavez around the time I lived there, 2005, 2006. 2011 was tough, but Chavez was still alive. He was, people knew he was ill. Things were getting tougher, but it's not like it was now. And it would be interesting to go now to Venezuela and, and almost do like a follow-up with all these young activists to to see what they're doing now and what role hip-hop still has. And, and yeah, and I, and I also found it interesting to do a, a film about hip-hop, you know, a, a U.S. coming from the U.S. in the context of Venezuela and, and arguably the most anti-U.S. government, I mean, a, a process that was challenging U.S. domination of the region. And I just found that, that kind of interesting as well. So we, we've touched on um, your filmmaking processes and um, your career path, I guess, as a filmmaker... Yeah throughout how did you manage to get it off get the projects off the ground how did you manage to secure funding how did did you just self-fund throughout how did you set up a production Mm. company for it i that first film i just made like literally i bought the cheapest camera that i thought was acceptable and a friend of mine who who was kind of wanting to be learn about camera said okay i'll come out and then you know it was very low budget and it was almost like a quite a reckless going to film school through making a, a feature documentary what i mean i think there are i mean i've 
I mean, with the project I'm working on now, I certainly think I'm going to apply for funding, even you know, even though that funding probably is harder to get now. But um, I certainly think there are more sort of responsible ways of making films and the funding and and all get the grants, the pre-production, post-production grants that you need. Um, I'm not someone that uh, can speak about that because I've never really <laughs> uh, really applied to them. Um, but it's not to say that I mean I want to and I will do quite I guess aggressive in the kind of self like you know even that first documentary there were contacts that allowed me to show it in a number of US universities and get screening fees and then educational life I mean I've in that sense found that the kind of grassroots approach to production and distribution is never going to pay the bills in any significant way but it it, it will say you know it's 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 one way to part fund something. Uh, it, you know, on that US tour, even I was like selling DVDs, and uh, I remember the premiere for the Venezuela film actually was at Saras, and it was probably because nothing had really come out in Venezuela at that time. But we had, you know, it was a Halili Lecture Theatre, and I think that fits 140, and I think close to 300 people came for the premiere. It kind of was, yeah, and we sold DVDs even of the film even at the premiere and so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend this as the way for any documentary filmmaker per se to make the film another thing I would say though that I'm glad I did even in that first film is that I spoke to a number of people that worked in documentaries and showed them the rushes and some of them you know are people that have been to film school and they were like well you can't use that you can't use that that's overexposed the sound there is not and so they kind of eliminated lots of the filming because of the technical sort of issues with it and then i would look at some of it and go yeah but look this is really like powerful emotionally and and then i had to make a really tough decision of someone with no experience and in the end you know even the archive i mentioned about these uh, that rap the hip-hop revolution rapping in chavez i was told by two people that worked oh that's too long and in the end and i showed one you know one thing of that was overexposed but from an activist and they ended up being the things that, that people sort of speak most about as the most powerful things in the film and that mm-hmm. showed me very early on whilst it's great to have technically really you know technically excellent material i think sometimes people who have been there's a, there's a kind of too a focus on aesthetic to the detriment of content so i think really you want both but if you have to choose sometimes maybe maybe content and emotion uh, are kind of key i think as a viewer my my main issue is as long as the sound's good it's okay if you have if you can hear what's being said that's it for us then thanks everyone for listening you can catch us on mydialorama.org.uk and you can tweet us if you have any questions or comments um at mydialorama and any questions for any of our guests as well we'll pass them on thanks for listening